All right, we are going to kind of continue um, in our series of important questions that I want to answer. Maybe it's not necessarily questions you're asking, but I think it's questions you should ask, and it's it's questions that are worth answering. Uh, real quick, though, Kelsey, did you have any any specific announcements for Knott's Berry right now? Uh, no, just that I need, if anybody has money, they can give it to me. Okay. So if you want to go, you give her cash. Yes, and if you haven't signed up, I do need to know, because I'm buying tickets. Yep. We still can, how many, we can maybe squeeze one or two, three. We can make it work. We can make it work. So if you want to go, sign up today, but today is it. Today is it. Did you hear me, Campbell boys? Did you hear me, Campbell sons right there? Sons of Sam, did you hear me? All right. Okay, so. Samson's. Hey! How did I never think of that before? Okay, anyway. Um, So. Let's pray, and then we'll get into um, this question today. Dear God in heaven, thank you so much for this uh, blessed morning that we get to gather and hear your word. We are, we are thankful that we get to hear your word, and we get to gather here in, in your name. Um, we get to gather in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would um, strengthen our and, and, and clear our thinking of you so that we can worship you better and deeper and with more joy. Amen. To set the stage for our topic this morning, I think it's important to first hear from two of my favorite Irish peasants on the topic of the Trinity. Um, Some of you who do not know, Donnell and Connell are true theologians in this department. And uh, I mean, I mean, I, I like Keith and Kristen Getty, all right, but man, Donald and Connell, they have a special place in my heart. So let's just watch a quick uh, video here. Um, you're probably going to need to turn up the volume just a little bit. Uh, by the way, this is Athanasius talking, oh no, this is Patrick, uh, St. Patrick, um, talking to two Irish peasants who are completely illiterate. <laughs> so uh, this will help us kind of understand a little bit of the Trinity this morning. Can you play it? It, w- it works, I swear. Just click forward. Never mind. I'll just have to summarize it for you, which is always bad on my... Can you advance the slide at all? Jeremy knows how to do these things. Well, let's start out with this. <laughs> um, many people argue uh, that the Trinity is an unbiblical doctrine. And, and and honestly, the reason I want to talk to you about the Trinity is because we've been talking about the Trinity again and again and again. As we've talked about these false forms of Christianity or false religions, I have found myself continually coming back to the Trinity. It's perhaps one of the things that really distinguishes true Christianity from false Christianity. You know true Christianity based on what they say about the Trinity. And you also know the the weakness of uh, religion like Islam by how they just blatantly misunderstand the Trinity. Um, Also, uh, JWs, they don't understand the Trinity. Uh, Mormonism doesn't understand the Trinity. The church, uh, the Unitarian church, uh, doesn't believe in the Trinity. Does it work? 
Good. All right, well, let's try it. It's not playing. You're going to need to turn it. Where's the big button? Is that it? No. Where's the full screen button? It's not there. It's not there. Just go down a little bit, down a little bit, down a little bit. Oh, right there. Oh, a little bit over to the right. A little bit over to the right. There you go. I don't, that might break it again, but there you go. Try it again. You might just have to go back a little bit. Oh, well, we, we can, uh, yeah, I, that's too bad. It's, it's a fun little show, but uh, it's not as important as you think it is, but it's just a really funny joke that worked really well this morning. Uh, but anyway, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of confusing uh, views of the Trinity. There's a, there's a view of the Trinity called modalism. Modalism. If, if this works, we can do it. But let me just get this board out. I'm going to risk everything by trying to spell for you. Uh, so, that's an O. Modalism. I felt like R.C. Sproul doing that. Okay, so modalism kind of essentially believes that God appears to you in different... That's Donald and Connell, by the way. Uh, God appears to you in different forms. So in the Old Testament, he appeared as God the Father. There you go. Go up to that screen. That's fine. Let's just skip it. It's not as fun. It's not as fun, but it'll work. Then skip the slideshow. I'll go without it. The Old Testament, he appeared as God the Father. The Gospels, he appeared to us as God the Son. And in today, in the church age, he now appears. He, he appears to us in the mode of the Holy Spirit. That's modalism. It's, it's one God, but he just kind of appears in different ways. So an example of this is, you know, I am me, but I appear to you as a youth pastor. But to my wife... I appear as a husband, and as to my kids, I appear as dad. Or to my oldest daughter, who is so confused by the fact that her friends get to call me pastor, but she doesn't. She tries to call me pastor dad. But anyway, so, so the, the idea is it's, it's one person, one person, but this one person's just kind of getting bored of one persona, so this person appears in a different. That is modalism. Is it not worth it? Oh, you got it? Okay, well, let's, let's walk. Oh. <laughs> okay, Pastor, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Pastor, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning. And we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple. Okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Stop picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms, liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! 
What? Mortalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! <laughs> Get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. <laughs> All right, sorry. Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horse. Patrick, you're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously... I've never heard Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. All right, I'll try again. Uh, Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Moralism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an animal. Partialism, revisit. Fine. <laughs> Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Pastor? <laughs> Alright, that's, that's just brilliant right there. Um, and the reason I show you that is to give you guys a heads up that um, there is a historical context to the Trinity. It's not as though in 325, Constantine, Emperor Constantine, was just bored and he decided to invent a, um, a doctrine. That's what is proposed by some, but that is not at all true. And Donald and Connell have helpfully reminded us of this, right? There were theological and historical reasons. There were errors, theological errors that were floating around in the first few centuries that were maybe taking some of the Bible, but not all of the Bible, and that's where they came up with these views, these uh, false views of the Trinity. So I've already kind of communicated modalism, Arianism, partialism, and I'll put um, here you go, so you kind of see how partialism works. A partialism is saying God is three parts. There is a part of God that is Um, the Father, there's a part of God that's the Son, there's a part of God that's the Holy Spirit, but think about that for a second. There is, if you understand it this way, God, uh, the Son is only partially God, right? Because he's a third of God. Uh, the, The Holy Spirit is only partially God. He is a third of God. He, therefore, you know, Every person of the Trinity isn't fully God. Now, that might not make a lot of sense to you, but think about it for a while. That's actually a very big deal. You're saying that Jesus isn't fully God if he is only part of God. 
That's partialism. And I, and I threw this one up there too, tritheism. Is that how you spell it? Close enough. <laughs> are, you, sure. are you serious? Are you joking with me? Pretty sure the I and the E are, are, are switched. Really? Maybe. Who thinks they're switched? I, mean, I could be wrong. It says on the chalkboard. It can't be wrong. <laughs> you're right. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Okay. Tritheism is probably what you think of when you think of the Trinity, and it's wrong. Uh, but it, it kind of it kind of thinks of God more as a God in a group. Right? There's three gods up there, and they're just really close to each other. They kind of form this club. That's what maybe perhaps the view is. And and I'll I'll admit it. Like yeah, that's kind of how it sounds too. Uh, but. But what are, we, what are we talking about when we're talking about the Trinity? We're talking about something that's a very, very important doctrine to know. Um, and all of these are false forms of Christianity or false forms of the understanding of the Trinity because in some way or another, if you think about it long enough, you'll see they're all diminishing the glory of God and they're diminishing the deity of the individual persons, if I can put it that way. So we need to uphold, we need to uphold the full deity of every single person. Now I'm going to talk about that, but before I do, there are, as you can see, many ways to get thinking about God wrong. There are many ways to get the Trinity wrong, and it's a little bit scary at times. Uh, Next slide. You might be afraid to even mention Trinity to anyone because you'll be afraid that you're going to say it wrong. i got to explain this whole triangle thing. He's not the God is this and that. It's kind of a little scary, and maybe perhaps you're a little scared of the Trinity. Maybe you think in the back of your head that maybe this is like a bad doctrine that we kind of want to hide in the closet. It's something that we don't tell people until they're mature, Christians or something like that. It's, it's, it's something that we kind of want to hide and conceal because it's confusing and it's hard. But let me just encourage you this morning, just because something is hard or difficult to understand does not mean it's not important and does not mean it's not true. And I even want to go as far this morning, and here's my scandalous statement for the morning, to say that the doctrine of the Trinity is essential to the Christian faith. You, you have to believe in the Trinity in order to be a Christian. It is fundamental. Here, move to the next slide. It is, we'll, we'll just have Donald and Connell watching us the entire time so that I'm fearful, right? Uh, you have to believe in the Trinity as central, fundamental, essential, as the core of faith, as the beginning of the true Christian confession. Otherwise, you can't be a Christian. It is, it is the beginning about God that you must understand. And that's like, oh boy, I don't, that sounds maybe perhaps uh, fearful, but you need to think carefully about the Trinity because the Trinity forms the boundaries of something we call orthodoxy, right? If you do not believe in the Trinity, you are no longer believing in the Christian faith. And this confession must be believed by those who will become Christians, who are baptized in the name of Christ, as we will see in a few moments. And just so you see the significance of believing in the Trinity, and I'll try to at the end kind of explain it a little bit more, but I just want you to first see the significance. Next slide. This is Athanasius. Um, I'm sure Athanasius didn't look this way, but this is how uh, middle uh, medieval monks thought Athanasius, or artists thought he looked. But I'm sure he wasn't exactly like that, but that's just an artist rendering. This is the Athanasian Creed. Athanasius was a, a defender of uh, 
the faith early on in the 4th century. He was a defender of the Nicene Creed, which upheld... Uh, you know, the, the doctrine of the divinity of Christ, and he was also a defender of the doctrine of the Trinity. So this was a very significant person, and there was this creed that kind of became attached with his name. It's kind of interesting. It probably wasn't written by him, but it's clearly kind of flowing after him and in his line. But I want you to just read this creed with me, if you can see it, and just see how significant the doctrine of the Trinity is. Before we say, oh, maybe we should just kind of hide this from new converts and only teach people like, you know, 10 years into the Christian faith, just listen to what this creed says and then we'll talk about it. Here's what the Athanasian Creed affirms. Uh, Whoever desires to be saved should, above all, hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who, uh, by the way, Catholic means universal there. Don't be freaked out by that. Um, Number two, anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Notice this creed just there at the beginning is establishing if if you do not believe the following, you will perish eternally. Perish eternally. This is a, a core Understanding. This is the this without this understanding, without this belief, you do not have true Christian and saving faith. Number three. Now, this is the Catholic faith. Once again, uh, Catholic just means Church Universal. This is what all Christians must believe: um, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons. That means to blur them together kind of a modalism, you could say, or dividing the essence, uh, that would be uh, kind of dividing the God up into parts, like partialism or tritheism. Um, For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is still another, but the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, and the glory equal, and the majesty co-eternal. Now notice this, the creed is affirming the full deity of each person in the Trinity. But, and and, and notice also, it's also going out painfully, and and if you read the rest of the creed, you'll see this, it just goes into massive detail about this, uh, the Father is not the Son, the Father does not, uh, the Father is not begotten, the the Father does not proceed, It, it just goes into all of this detail to affirm who the Father is, who the Son is, and who the Holy Spirit is, and clarifies and distinguishes all of the persons from one another, but why does it go into such painful detail? Because it believes the Trinity the true doctrine of the Trinity is key, essential for true faith. Notice, I love that uh, line six. The divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one. The glory equal and the majesty co-eternal. So just to set the stage for you, the Trinity is a gospel issue. It's a salvation issue. It's an orthodoxy issue. It's an essential issue. Now, you don't need to necessarily understand it all perfectly perhaps to affirm it but you do need to affirm it to be saved but i want to answer the following questions one this morning and then one next week because there's no way there's no way i'll be able to answer this first question by uh, in time by itself so uh, number one is the trinity essential according to the bible uh, so it's 
Well, I, I'm okay with creeds. I love creeds. They, they provide a lot of comfort to me. But I'm only okay with creeds and councils, as far as I see them, affirming and articulating the theology that we see in the Bible. Is the Trinity as essential to the Bible as it is to the Athanasian Creed? That's the question I want to answer today. Because that's a big deal, right? The, the creed is saying you will perish everlastingly if you do not believe in the Trinity. And then next week, I want to answer the question, is the Trinity or how is the Trinity essential in your life? And I hope by the, even the end of today, you'll begin to see, wow, believing truth about God transforms the way I think about God. And the way I think about God transforms my faith. My peace, my sanctification, the fruit in my life, everything flows out of a right view of God. And we'll talk about that a little bit next week. But for this week, is the Trinity really essential according to the Bible? Write down this first point. Write down this first point. And, and here we see, uh, here we see, wait, go back once, sorry. I don't want to get into that first point yet. Um, there's, there's a few arguments against the Trinity. As you can tell, one, one, one camp would say, you know, it's illogical. It doesn't make sense. Um, how can three equal one? That's not math, you know. Um, there, there's the other idea saying we do not find it uh, crystallized or clarified in the Bible like we see in the creed. We don't see the Bible communicating this doctrine like we see in these creeds. Should we believe in this creed like, like it is the Bible? Um, and what, what of the argument that they're often making, it was just added by these councils. That's usually the way it goes. But we should, we should be careful because doctrine, we, we derive doctrine from the Bible in, in, in kind of in, in different ways, either directly or by deduction. This is the Westminster Confession of Faith, which, by the way, I don't believe everything that the Westminster Confession of Faith um, uh, states, but I'm, I'm saying I appreciate the way they approach doctrine. Just listen to what Westminster says. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life is either, listen to this, it's either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from script, scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the spirit or or the traditions of men. Notice, they say we do theology based on what is expressly communicated to us by Scripture or what we deduce to be true of our God from Scripture. Okay? So just because, just because you don't see things systematized like we do in, you know, John MacArthur's Biblical Doctrine or Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology or any of these other theological books, just because we don't see that systemization of doctrine does not mean that doctrine is not true. It just means we are pulling them together to uh, derive some conclusions on who our God is, but based on the whole counsel of God. And that's okay to do that. We should do that, but we should be careful to always be asking ourselves, but are we, are we really seeing this from Scripture? And that's what I want to see. In, in the Bible, I think you see, uh, you see all sorts of truths about God. You, you see that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Spirit, the, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And you also see that God is exactly one. You see all of these truths. And so that's kind of what I want to walk through as we think about what the Bible says about the Trinity. Does it make sense? Eh, maybe, maybe not. But anyway, I I once again want to affirm to you that the Trinity is a biblical doctrine. So let's go to slide one. Three persons are called God. That's what you see. 
Three persons are known as God. Once again, Connell and Donald just looking at me, staring at me, making sure I don't say anything wrong. Um, here, here, write down this. I mean, obviously, I don't think I need to argue for very long that the Father is God. I think you guys probably have that for the most part. For example, 1 Corinthians 8.6 says... Uh, for us there is one God the Father from whom all things and we exist for him, right? The Father's God. We can move over that pretty quickly. The Son is God. I think we can actually move over that pretty quickly as well. If you went to Steadfast, it was all about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ also being fully God. But just to cement it for you, you could write down a verse like John 1, 1 through 3, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, just... Uh, quickly jump over to the other slide. By the way, if you want to watch another hilarious video on uh, Donald and Connell interviewing Jehovah's Witnesses on this verse and just just destroying their argument, there you go. You can watch that later uh, with me or without me. That's fine. Um, but but we see here that the Son is affirmed as God. We also see this in John. Write this down. John one eighteen. John one eighteen. Listen to this verse. This is extraordinary. What this verse says about Jesus. This is the LSB. No one has seen God at any time. Semicolon. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Notice, uh, the only begotten one, that's a, that's, a, that's a phrase that always refers to Jesus, the Son of God. Notice he is described as the only begotten God. The scripture affirms that Jesus is God. Matter of fact, I looked it up for giggles and laughs in the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, translation of the New Testament. You know how they translate this? They say, no man has seen God. Remember, they don't believe that Jesus is divine, uh, or they don't believe that he's fully God. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten lowercase g, God, who is at the Father's side, he has explained him. Notice, they can't escape the grammar of this verse. It clearly is saying that the begotten one is God. But they just say he's just a lesser God created based on how we interpret um, John 1. 1. But once again, Donald and Connell do a very excellent job in destroying that argument. Uh, once again, this is what we see of the Son in creeds of the church as well. The Nicene Creed says, I believe in... In one, Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of gods, light of lights, very God of very God. That is an extraordinary statement in the Creed of Nicaea. How many different ways do you want to say that Jesus is God? Very God of very gods, light of lights, uh, God of gods. That is a, a tremendous statement of the deity of Christ. And they're getting that from what they see in Scripture. And there are more verses, but I won't get into it. Once again, I'm assuming you guys kind of embrace that already, right? And, but also, we also see that the Spirit is God. And perhaps, perhaps this needs to be clarified a little bit as well. The Spirit is often the one who is not seen as a person, but a force. The Spirit is seen as kind of a secondary thing, not truly or fully God. But you see this in Scripture. You see the Holy Spirit is more than a force or a power from God. For example, Acts 5, you can lie to the Spirit. Do you lie to force? Does Luke Skywalker lie to the force? I don't think so. I, I don't think so, but that's a still, silly illustration. Um, uh, Jesus promises another helper and the word another is another of the same kind. He will be a helper like me in my absence, but he will contain the sameness of my essence, my nature, because he is God. That's John 14, 25 to 26. The Holy Spirit um, 
possesses, we see these attributes of God. The Holy Spirit, get this, write this down, is called holy. Right? Uh, The Spirit of holiness. The Spirit is eternal. The Spirit possesses truth, life, grace, wisdom, power. And we even see in 1 Peter 4.14, the Spirit is called the Spirit of glory. That is a statement of deity, of divinity. Uh, He possesses the essence of God. And we also see the Holy Spirit is um, equated with God, equal with God, uh, paralleled with God, right? Old Testament references are quoted in the New Testament. Old Testament references that are God speaking. And in the New Testament, Hebrews says, this is the Holy Spirit speaking. God is equated with the Holy Spirit. You also see that uh, the Holy Spirit uh, bears the name of the Father and the Son alongside them, given equal position in some statements in the Scripture. Once again, the Holy Spirit is not just a power, a force. The Holy Spirit is the third person of a trinity, we will say. But the Holy Spirit is fully God. But this brings us to our, our next point. Move over. Number two, the thing we see in the Bible, and, and this is probably in the back of your heads, and it should be, because it's so emphasized in the Bible, there is only one God. There's only one God. Genesis 1.1, there's the assumption of one God, right? You could also write down this reference, Deuteronomy 4.35, to you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh, he is God, there is no other beside him. Just read Deuteronomy, and you will quickly see that God is God alone, the only God. The verse you're probably thinking of, Deuteronomy 6.4, it says this, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. That is an inescapable truth from the Bible. We must affirm that when we read the Bible. Now, the word one there is interesting. It doesn't mean one like like one in singularity. It actually is a word that kind of communicates this idea of unity um, and in diversity. For example, the same word one is used in Genesis 2.24, and that verse is saying the two shall become one in reference to marriage. So one there is a sense of unity. And Deuteronomy 6.4 here is saying in context that Yahweh is unique. He is different than all of the other gods that are surrounding you, O Israel. He is exclusive. He is alone. He is by himself. There is not this, there's God club. When all the gods come into heaven and argue and debate about what should be done and the God with the biggest club wins the debate. God is the only God and he does what he pleases. And we see every once in a while the mystery of heaven open up like in places like Job 1 where God, yes, allows a demon into his presence, Satan himself, but there is never a question of who's in charge or who is God in that interaction. Yahweh is one, and this is a statement of exclusivity, but it also can kind of embrace this idea of diversity, but with unity. Now, this is important here. We've talked about these first two points, right? There are three persons known as God, but there's also one God. You might be correct to say, I can see how you could jump to the idea of modalism. I, I, could see, I could understand it, right? God appears in different forms. When I pull these two truths together, that seems to be what is happening. I, there's, there's one God with different names, right? That, that maybe, maybe that's what's going on. 
God appeared one way this way and another way that way. But this is where you go wrong and you need to examine other scriptures as well. Let's go to our third point of what we see in the Bible. We see three persons are distinguished from one another in very important ways. And this is where the creeds and the councils are coming from when they're insisting on one God in three persons. One God in three persons. Just jump over to another slide really quick for fun. So there's a question, right? Uh, who, if you, if I am, who are you? Who, right? That is the question. We see a distinction. We see multiple gods in the same place communicating with one another and interacting, er, seemingly interacting with one another. How can Jesus be God and the Father be God if they're both in the same place at the same time? And this is the distinction we see. So, but let me just break this down really quick. We, we see in Scripture that the Father is not the Son, though. Once again, they're distinguished from one another. You could look up places like John 3, and you see the Father sending the Son. Last time I checked, that involved two persons. You can't send yourself. Maybe you could. We also see the Father and the Son loving each other and communicating love towards each other. John 3, John 5, John 14. They are expressing love towards each other. Two persons loving each other. They speak to each other. John 11, the Son speaks to the Father. John 17, the Son speaks to the Father. Uh, a matter of fact, Old Testament even, you see Psalm 110, 1, um, the Lord said to my Lord, right? That's, that's the Son speaking to the Father. The Son is an advocate before the Father. It seems to be two persons being expressed there. We also see the persons of the Trinity uh, distinguished in this way. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Spirit uh, descends upon the Son at the Son's baptism. Jesus, once again, to talk about this again, promised another comforter, another of the same kind. So he promised um, someone that would come that would be distinguished from him, but the same in essence. Uh, The Spirit's ministry also, we see in John 16, is to glorify the Son. That is the Spirit's ministry. And we also see this, the Father is not the Spirit. So we see the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Father is not the Spirit. Are you guys confused yet? I'm just trying to illustrate that these persons are distinguished from each other, and you cannot come away with the conclusion that, oh, it's just God operating in different, with different masks on. That's modalism, and you can't say that. The Father sends the Spirit. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf before the Father. These persons are distinguished from one another, and they interact with one another. As a matter of fact, it's really incredible. You see the Father, the Spirit, and the Son all together some places and distinguished from one another, right? So if, if you're not paying attention, listen to this, right? Genesis 1, 1 and 2, you see God the Father creating, you see the Word being a part of creation, and then you see the Spirit hovering over. That's just, that's just a suggestion. You also see in Genesis 1, 26, God speaking, let us make man in our image. You see a plurality assumed there. And then in places like Isaiah 61, 1, you see Yahweh, Messiah, and the Spirit all together in the same place, but distinguished from one another. Just to read, the Spirit of 
uh, of Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me, that's Messiah talking, to bring good news to the afflicted. Notice, the Spirit, Yahweh, and the Lord are all there, or me, the Messiah, is all there. You see in Luke 3, or in Matthew 3, in the baptism of Jesus, you see the Father speaking, the Son being baptized, and the Spirit descending upon the Son. See, they're all in the same place. You see in Romans 8, um, 9 through 11, all are referred distinctly in, in, in talking about the indwelling of the Spirit in the believers, but they're distinguished from one another. And listen to this, 2 Corinthians, I love this verse, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, they're placed equally alongside each other. It says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What do you do when you place someone in equal standing with another? You're saying they are equal, right? Notice Paul doesn't say here, he doesn't say the grace of Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of Peter be with you all. Because that would be saying Peter is kind of on the same level. A little bit. But that's how the New Testament speaks about these three persons. And you could even look up Ephesians 1. It's a majestic uh, statement of how three persons are involved in your salvation. Just read Ephesians 1 and you'll see these three persons interacting. Let's go to the next slide. So just in conclusion, go forward. We see, when we examine Scripture alone, we see there is one God who exists eternally in three distinct persons. But one God, one essence, one substance, you could say one nature, but also existing eternally in three distinct persons. If you ever say that at one point the Father created the Son, you have gone beyond Scripture. And you've said Jesus is less than divine. Who says the Father created the Son? Well, Arianism did. And by the way, that's not a font in Microsoft Word. That's, that's different. Arianism believes that the Father created the Son. And who also believes that? Jehovah's Witnesses also believe that as well, right? All are equal. And this is once again where we get this articulation from these creeds, right? Uh, this is the universal Christian faith that we worship. One God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons, blurring them together, or nor dividing the essence, kind of saying God is part here, part here, and part here. No, each person is fully God, and yet fully God is distinct in three persons. Uh, for the person of the Father is distinct from the person is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is another. So, all to say, here it is, I'll try to ex express Trinity, uh, Trinity doctrine clearly, we worship one God, but in three persons, right? We worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity. That is the Athanasian Creed. Or, if you care, here is the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. It says this, Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons. One God in three persons, blessed Trinity. That is what we see from Scripture. And here's an interesting thought for you. We wouldn't have made up the doctrine of the Trinity. Who would make up the doctrine of the Trinity? It is only believed because it is revealed. Otherwise, we would not choose to believe it. Uh, these things make a whole lot more sense. 
The Trinity doesn't make sense. Why would we believe it unless it was revealed to us? And that's kind of one of the arguments, right? This is not, this is not a doctrine that we kind of just talk about after the Bible. This is the doctrine that we have to talk about when we read John. This is the doctrine we have to talk about when we read Colossians. We have to understand this if we understand Scripture. It is revealed doctrine. It is not an uh, extra doctrine after scripture. And that is why it's so central and so core. And this brings us full circle, right? Full circle back to the beginning, right? Is this confession really essential? Is it essential in the Bible? Is it essential to the Christian faith? Now, maybe some of you are like, is it? Well, yes, it is. Why is it so essential? Be, well, number one, I'll, I'll use an illustration, and then I'll use just a practical argument, okay? Uh, number one, it is essential to the beginning of the Christian faith, because how are we told to be baptized? How are we told to begin the Christian faith? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is something you must believe to begin the Christian faith. As a matter of fact, turn over to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 19. This is the Great Commission by our Lord. And notice what he says. 28, 19. How does Jesus want Christians to begin the Christian life? How does Jesus want you to begin the Christian life? What do you need to affirm to be called one of his disciples? Notice what he says in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular name, one God, one essence, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them, right? This is not my words saying Trinity is essential. This is Jesus' words. If you want to be my disciple, you have to be baptized in this name, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is essential according to Jesus. This is necessary, basic instructions, basic knowledge, you could say. Um, but secondly, I would say this too, why, why it's so essential it's essential to have true understanding of who your God is. It's essential. It transforms the way you think about everything. It transforms the way you think about yourself and your world. Yes, he is a creator. Yes, he is a ruler, but he is not primarily to be known as creator or ruler. What happens when you say God is primarily most to be described by his creation power or his ruling authority? What happens when you say that is what God ultimately most is? Well, what you're saying is if he's primarily creator, he needs a creation in order to be God. But he doesn't need a creation in order to be God. He can exist freely without a creation and be God. If you say he is ultimately a ruler... You say he needs something to rule in order to be God. How about this? How about this idea? Knowing the true God is wonderful. Here is the glory of God, right? God exists in eternity, in Trinity, and he existed in the Trinity in eternal happiness with himself and for himself and unto himself. He didn't create the world because he was lonely. He didn't create the world because he needed something to rule. He was eternally happy in himself. Why did he create? 
the world. Why did he create you? Why did he send his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin? Why does he send his own spirit to indwell and seal you? Why? Not because he's lonely, not because he's needy, not because he's dependent, but because he is absolutely sufficient in himself and out of the overflow of his abundant love for himself, he created a world to show off his greatness. And that changes the way you view creation. My God isn't a distant creator, but a, a father who creates in order to show his love. Not because he needs my love. Not because of that. He is infinitely happy in himself. That to me is essential truth. That is essential truth of our faith. That is why the scripture treats the Trinity so essential. But is the Trinity really essential in your life? Well, uh, come back. We'll talk about that next week. Um, Let's pray now, and then I'm going to have you guys discuss it for a minute. Dear God in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for blessing us with this moment. I pray that anything that has not come from you or your word would be quickly forgotten, but the truth of you and your word about yourself, your perfectness, your perfection, your triunity, Father, Son, and Spirit, I pray that you would allow that to sink into our hearts and minds and transform the way we think about this world. We pray that we would offer worship to you. Worship to you. Because you are infinitely deserving of that worship. We come to you praying for you to be pleased with our worship because of what you have done. How you have chosen to love us. And you have chosen to send the Son to die for us. And you have chosen to send your Spirit to seal us. We pray that we would think well on you, think rightly on you, so that our lives and our worship would overflow to your glory. Amen.